cultural awareness, uh, what it does is it kind of says, okay, now that we know this about a poverty worldview, how do we then utilize what we know about a poverty worldview to help us as we communicate and walk through relationships with individuals that are from other cultures or have different worldviews? So this is kind of more of a missions-based kind of training. So you're going to hear a lot of mission words like cultural awareness, what we call CQ, cultural intelligence, contextualization. Um, and then we're going to kind of apply it as to everything that we've, you've learned back when we talked about poverty worldview. And so hopefully uh, this will make sense. Has, have, have you ever heard of the term cultural intelligence? All right, so it's kind of CQ, like you have, have you ever heard of emotional intelligence? And you've heard of IQ and all that. So there are all these different intelligences. They keep on coming up with them. Uh, emotional intelligence is the new one that I realized I'm probably not that good at. Um, but so cultural intelligence, when we look at a definition, it basically measures your capability to relate and work effectively in a culturally diverse situation. So when we talk about uh, navigating in a setting where we are working with individuals that come from a, a poverty worldview, in many ways, you are working with individuals from different cultures. Now, they speak English. They may live in your same zip code or at least your same area code. So when we think about missions-wise, we don't necessarily begin to think, oh, we are, we're working with a different culture. But in many ways, you are. So if you, as you look at this handout that I gave you, when we talk about cultural intelligence, we look at four distinct areas that you can kind of begin to kind of grade yourself on uh, or look at it. So first you have motivation. It's a person's curiosity and desire to interact and learn from people who are different. It also includes a person's uh, confidence to interact with ambiguity and uncertainty. Uh, if, has anybody ever been on an international missions trip? No, kind of, have you ever experienced culture shock when you're like, I don't understand why they do what they do or how they do what they do? And there's this kind of ambiguous uncomfortableness that you just rest in, but you don't know what to do with it. So, that, so our motivation, that when you're in that uncomfortable setting, our motivation leads us to kind of begin to study that moves us to the next place where you see knowledge. Knowledge, CQ knowledge, is what we know about similarities and differences that help us recognize the unfamiliar. This knowledge includes aspects such as history, society, customs, religion, politics, and economics. So again, many times when we're talking about walking through a cross-cultural setting, um, some of these would be a little bit easier. You go to Google, you know you're going to this country and this region in that country. You can say, okay, what is the primary religion? What language do they speak? You can walk through it in a really familiar way, but when you're navigating relationships with individuals that are navigating or living in, in a poverty worldview, how do you do research in and among that setting? Because you need to grow your knowledge about individuals that you're working with so that you can better come alongside and help them, better communicate the gospel, and figure out what methods and uh, opportunities that you have to reach that. So knowledge is a very impar important part of 
cultural intelligence. And then you go to strategy, which is the ability to make sense of intercultural experiences based on our learning. Because of our knowledge, we gather information about our surroundings as we try to figure out how to act. And so, and then that strategy moves into behavior. It's the ability to act appropriately in different situations based upon the context, the situation, and with the, this part's important, with the appropriate cultural responses. So that means that you become comfortable navigating in a culture that you are not familiar with or that you do not come from. Now, all missionaries, whether it's short-term, mid-term, or long-term missionaries, they walk through or need to have some form of cultural intelligence. Yes, sir? Do you have a personal experience or example when you went to the forum? So it, it's kind of like this, this kind of walking through and, and just as you recognize when you're put in a situation where you don't know. I just came back from, um, uh, I took a, a kind of a crazy trip. Uh, in 10 days, I went from um, U.S. to Amsterdam, Amsterdam to Istanbul, Istanbul to Poipet, Cambodia. So basically went around the world in 10 days, <laughs> literally, and I was in three very different cultures. I was in a European culture, which would be more Western, uh, really kind of post-Christian culture. Individuals were really just not excited about the gospel or not very open about their faith. Then I went into Istanbul, which uh, is Turkey, 99% Muslim religion, 99% non-Christian. And so we're walking through, and it's very different from Amsterdam. Then I go into Cambodia, which is a communist country, but in the areas that I was working in, they were very open about the ability to kind of navigate um, faith and talk about Jesus and in a worship service and all that, things that I would never have been able to do in Turkey. So in each one of those situations, I did not speak the language. I was unfamiliar with the, the appropriate customs uh, or the right things to do, the right things to say and not to say. And so what I had to do is I had to quickly, I did research, and I, I knew a little bit about each one of those areas. I grew my knowledge by talking to the missionaries on the field, and I would gain that knowledge and what was appropriate, what was not appropriate. And then my strategy was when I had opportunities to engage with nationals, we would just ask questions and, and see okay, what is the right thing to do, what is not the right thing to do. And then when we talk about behavior, sometimes... When you're in a situation where you don't know what to do culturally, try to do as little as possible because you don't want to offend, right? You know, when we talk about in our send-out training, uh, one of the last exercises that we do um, is we walk through and we have a house church uh, model. We walk in and we give them kind of a strategy and we say, hey, you are on a short-term mission trip in the Middle East. You have been uh, asked by... Uh, local believers to come and host a worship service. So they're supposed to take everything that they've learned uh, and kind of uh, walk through what it would do for them to lead a, um, a worship service in that country. What's awesome is we have an Af uh, a Christian Afghan uh, who actually helps us walk through this. And so they walk through all this stuff. Well, in a house church in that part of the world, you're sitting on the floor and most Americans are not used to sitting on the floor for long periods of time, right? So when we, we normally uh, sit uh, crisscross applesauce, right? <laughs> well, 
that lasts about 10, 15 minutes, right? And then you're, you start losing feeling in your legs. Well, what a lot of our, our uh, trainees would do is they would stretch out their feet to get the blood flowing again and all of that. Well, after it was all over, the, um, the, the Afghan Christian said, when you showed me the sole of your foot, I was greatly offended. Because in their culture, to show the bottom of your foot is, a, is an offensive moment. You want to you offend somebody, you show them the sole of your shoe. And, and so what that created was in that moment, they were in an, an uncomfortable situation. Granted, it was a staged uncomfortable situation, but they were able to see how their behavior kept, could have offended somebody from actually hearing the gospel or uh, being uh, an effective part of a worship service with uh, some local body of believers. <clears throat> so those are just some kind of examples where I've seen it in my own life. And you've experienced every aspect of this in some form or fashion when you navigate just other cultures here in our city. You try to, if you're trying to engage in a relationship, you try to walk with them and ask them questions and figure out what they believe or how you can get to know them better. And what you're really doing, depending on how, uh, how strong your cultural intelligence or your CQ is, will depend upon how willing you're, you are to, how motivated you are to get to know another culture. So I want you to think about this. Now remember, we're setting the stage for, okay, if we're navigating relationships with individuals that come either from another culture or another worldview, and we're going to talk about worldviews in a minute, we're trying to figure out how can we best walk with them as we navigate that relationship so that we can better position ourselves to help them. Right? So when you think about cultural intelligence, your ability to function skillfully in a cultural context different than your own, how would you rate yourself on a scale from one to five? How would you rate yourself or rate your cultural intelligence? Now, I want you to think about this. Think about your ability to function skillfully in a cultural context different than your own. And the reason why I want us to rate ourselves is many times if we never see where we're at, we can never try to improve where we need to be. So if you say, Ben, I'm a three. I mean, I don't do it all the time, but I can interact with other cultures pretty well. Uh, well, what's gonna, what is it going to take if you look at your motivation, knowledge, strategy, and behavior? What is it going to take to move you from a three to a four? Or maybe you're a one. You're, you're dead set in your own culture. You don't really care about other cultures. You're not even concerned about what other cultures believe. I don't think that would be anybody in this room, but it it's happens. <laughs> what would you do? What would it take to get you from a one to a two? So the reason why I want to just ask you to kind of rate yourself and think about it, you don't have to tell anybody, but our goal is for you to be able to be willing to say, you know what, I need to grow in my ability to function in other cultures. When that ability grows, then you're going to be able to better communicate the gospel in an effective way. All right, so let's think about this. How can you increase your motivation and curiosity and a desire to interact and learn from people who are different than you? What, are, what is one way that you can 
begin to increase your motivation to interact with others from different cultures. Y'all feel free to answer if you have anything. Can you think of a place where there will be other cultures? Yeah. Yeah. Be willing to go somewhere where people are different than you, right? And be motivated to do it for a specific reason, right? A lot of times when we interact with different cultures, it's not intentionally, it's by accident. So what I want you to begin to think about is your motivation is your intentionality to engage other cultures because that's, that's going to help you take the next step in your CQ. Like, I work, I work with a lot of this people group or these types of people, whatever you can put in that category, do you think it would behoove you to say, if I want to be a witness or if I want to minister to them, I need to learn as much as I can about them. So you put yourself in situations so that you can learn. And that's where the knowledge grows. So if you're trying to help somebody in generational poverty, how can you increase your knowledge about their worldview and about how they live their lives? How can you increase your knowledge? Asking a question? Yeah. We call it entry. When we talk about missionary task, it's entry. The best way to to participate in the entry in the missionary task is to ask questions. Ask appropriate questions, right? And and if you think you're going to offend, say, I am not trying to offend in any way. I'm ignorant. I would just love to know X, Y, Z, right? It's okay if there's a relationship there that you're just trying to, you're wanting to seek understanding. And then that's going to help you to create a strategy and a behavior that's going to help increase your cultural intelligence. So why do we have to bother with cultural intelligence? And this is where we kind of, we're going to shift and kind of talk about missions for a little bit. Are you all okay with that? All right, (laughs) we're going to talk about missions. This is why, because different cultures have different value systems that determine what makes sense to them and what they are comfortable with. So different cultures have different value systems that determine what makes sense to them. And many times it's different than your value system and it's different than what makes sense to you. So you can walk into a setting where you're, you're approaching with somebody in a different culture or a different worldview and you could be offended or confused because their value system or how they make sense of the world doesn't make sense to you because it's not the framework or the worldview from which you view the world. So um, a good example of that would be like we talked about with poverty. Uh, If you remember... Back at the very beginning of the semester, we, handed, we gave you a handout about hidden rules within the classes. And one of the things that we highlighted was how different classes, those that are in poverty, those that are in middle class, those that are in wealth, uh, how they uh, interact or how they uh, utilize or feel about money. Those in poverty, they view money as to be spent. Those in middle class view money to be managed those who are wealthy view money to be invested. So if I am in a middle class 
and I am navigating life with somebody who comes from a poverty worldview, what happens is when they go and spend money haphazardly with no responsibility, they just want to spend it, then I get frustrated and it's because they value money differently than I do and because I don't recognize their value system is different than mine, then I am frustrated with how they are managing their money. Because from a middle class worldview, it's simple. You get this much money every month, you budget out, you Dave Ramsey it, make every dollar count, right? And it just makes sense. And then everybody's happy at the end of the month. Well, if I'm from a poverty worldview, and if I don't spend the money as soon as I get it, somebody else may take it from me. Or because I have a high value of entertainment, I'm going to spend that money on entertainment. Then there's this friction because they come to you Halfway through the month, all their money is gone and they're asking for help because they don't know what to do. And you're so frustrated because we had a budget. We went through the budget. You had every dollar that counted. Why did you spend it? It's how they view money. And so that's a great example when we're talking about a worldview, um, how that would matter. Now, when you talk about, let's talk about kind of cross-cultural setting when you're at missions, Western culture is very individualistic. Areas in Africa um, and uh, other places around the world, it's very community or communal driven. Uh, it's all about our individual rights. Well, individual rights in a lot of cultures around the world always come second to the rights and the needs of the group. So when those two worldviews come together, there's this clash how one culture views women based upon uh, how one culture views women versus how another culture views women, there's a clash, right? And so where, where we're walking through, the genders are equal. They can both offer something unique to a relationship. Another worldview would say women are less than, less than men. In some cases, less than human. So when you think about women and children in some cultures, that's why they're easily discarded. And, that's just, and so there's this clash of culture there. And so you have to kind of work that. And what's awesome is when the biblical worldview starts to impose upon their worldview and starts to change how they view women and starts to change how they view other things, that's the beauty of the gospel. Does that help answer your question? And we want to be prepared to interact with people from other cultures. If you're going to be effective in any type of ministry, you will most likely interact with individuals that are different from yourself. And with, high, uh, with a high cultural intelligence, you're going to be able to interact and work with them in a, in a good way. All right. Um, so real, real quick... I think it's always good to start with Scripture when we walk through. Okay, now we've kind of given you some of the, the theoretical stuff, aspects of when it comes to, hey, culture is important. We need to know what it means to, to study culture and to be a, a student of culture. But why do we need to? Well, it's basically because the Bible teaches us that we need to be uh, ready to engage the cultures. God has intentionally involved, is, an, is intentionally involved in cross-cultural ministry. Because Christians are to go to every ethnic group, this implies not only the mandate, but its feasibility. Christ himself accompanies us. So God says go to, um, 
Go therefore to all the what? Nations, right? He's saying go to all the nations. He's commanding us to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. So he's telling you, hey, here's the command. I want you to go to all the nations. So there's the mandate. And if he's telling and commanding us to go, do you think that it's possible to do that? Or do you think God is in the business of commanding us to do something that's impossible to do? Right? And then what he does, and and when I talk about Matthew 28, I always focus, all the other stuff is so important, but I'm like, and lo, I'm with you always. That is so encouraging to me. Now when I look at this command, that I'm like, Lord, I don't know how I can fulfill it. He says, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Christ goes with us as we kind of navigate this idea of cross-cultural missions. So, and it's in the Old Testament. Christ was to be the light of the Gentiles, as you see in Isaiah 42. And I love this. Uh, uh, The speaker on Sunday mentioned this verse. He says, is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to, or he says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. He's saying it is too small of a thing for you just to go to Israel. I want you to go to all the earth so that you can bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So what that means is from the beginning, from the Old Testament, we see God has a heart for the nations. If God has a heart for the nations, He has a heart for cultures because He created the cultures. And then in Pentecost, uh, you see Jews from every nation under heaven heard them speaking in His own language. And what you see here is that the power of the gospel overcomes one of the most um, difficult barriers to overcome with the gospel, and that is the language. And when you see missionaries, we have one missionary here, um, Kyle Roy, he, he serves in Brazil. All right, he grew up in Uruguay uh, as a missionary kid. This guy speaks Spanish, English, Portuguese. He serves in Brazil among an Italian people group, and he had to learn Italian as well. <laughs> and so, and the, you talk about a guy that has the gift of tongues, that for me is it. I'm like, how in the world? I mean, he, he speaks four languages fluently. And it's amazing to see how God equips his children to take the gospel to the nations so that we can get the gospel into their heart language in the way that it's best understood. Now, a lot of times when we're in Memphis and we're dealing with individuals in um, a cross-cultural setting or from a poverty worldview, we begin to see, like, we use English, but words don't always mean the same, right? So it's real simple, and sometimes we get so um, confused or we don't ask for clarity. If you don't understand a word, say, so what do you mean by that? This is what I mean by when you say this. When I say this, what is it that you mean when you say that. You see how simple that is? Same language. There's no language barrier. You're hearing, but when you hear that word, it means something to you based on your culture, your experience, your upbringing, your environment, and it may mean something completely different with somebody that has a different culture, 
a different environment, a different upbringing, and we have to ask for clarity, right? Right, yeah. Is, I mean, there are so many people that it is very, very uh, so ingrained mm-hmm. that you don't realize it until you, you go somewhere else. Right? right, until you go into that other cult. If you've, like, when I was in uh, Kenya last year in the spring, uh, I was in a worship service on a Sunday, and it's like a three hour worship service in a language that I did not understand. Um, and the music super loud, everybody's dancing, completely different worship experience. It was awesome, but like you said, it's not speaking to my heart. What spoke to my heart was like, God, you hear this and you rejoice because every tongue, every tribe will worship you around the throne, and this is just me being able to see a piece of that. But that heart language, as we go to the nations we are trying to figure out how do we get Scripture into the heart language of individuals. So you go to a, a country like Kenya, the, the, the government language is English, but they use Swahili most everywhere, but there's 72 tribes, and each tribe has its own language. And so for, for a, a Kenyan to speak three to four languages, it's no big thing. And so it's just the way that it works. But to get in that heart language to where they really understand it and they re- really grab hold of it is so key. Um, and it talks about uh, Acts 22. When you hear that heart language that we talked about, it was even powerful enough to stop a riot. When Paul spoke in their own Hebrew language, it was able to calm down that, um, that riot. The multicultural church, we're going to kind of, I always go too slow, so I'm going to have to go a little bit faster. Uh, The church from its inception has been multicultural and cross-cultural. And I think we have to be clear to know that when you, um, the church in its final form will include those purchased by Christ's blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. That revelation 7-9 is so critical for our understanding. The church was not made for a people group. It was made for all peoples. And all peoples is what heaven will be like. Now, uh, here on earth, we, we see this segregation by culture, don't we? Right? People who worship in their heart language or they look the same way or talk the same way, live in the same area, have the same socioeconomic background, they have a tendency to congregate together. Why do you think that is? It's comfortable, it's comfortable right? You know, when we talk about racism, and a lot of times we kind of will walk through and we'll talk about color, but in many ways what we're rejecting if you're racist is somebody else's culture. 
It's not necessarily the way they look. It's how they act, what they value. It's different than you, and you reject it. And that's, that's true racism in my mind because it's saying that I do not value as a person, I do not value your culture because my culture is better. And I've got a definition for that in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, you see uh, the salvation at 3,000 at Pentecost. That whole setting there, the nations were at in Jerusalem at that time to celebrate Passover. And when the message went out from Peter, the nations were saved there. And then they took it to the rest of the way. And the barrier to sharing the gospel with non-Jews took extraordinary measures to overcome, uh, overcome, including angelic visitation, visions, and providential timing. If you've read Acts chapter 10, what happens is Peter goes to the Gentiles and he says, the only reason I'm here is because an angel said that I was supposed to come because it is unlawful for me to hang out with you. But yet God told him, what I have cleaned, do not call unholy. Isn't that crazy? It took that to say that the, even if you go to Isaiah, it says salvation is for the nations, but yet it took God coming to Peter saying, I need you to go to Cornelius, a Gentile, and see what I'm doing with him. And that's how the gospel began to break down those barriers, and it has to continue to break down those barriers even today. Now, this is what I was talking about a minute ago, the uh, ethnocentrism. Now, most cultures tend toward ethnocentrism, which is a prejudicial preference of their own culture to all others. Sometimes this is unintentional because you talked about where we're comfortable is where we go. Well, where we're comfortable, you, what you believe is right, right? I have a saying, different is different, different is not bad, right? So, so many times when we look at different, we think different is bad, and what this ethnocentrism says, if you're different than me, it's bad because my people, my way, my culture is best. Ethnocentrism is a prejudicial because the strengths of other cultures are often not appreciated. And I think this is so true. When we're in a Western culture, we highlight and maximize individualism. Well, we lose the communalism of other cultures. One of the great examples of this is how we treat our, er our elderly in this country versus other countries around the world. Many times the elderly in our country are not as honored or held in high esteem where other cultures, they are put on a pedestal and they are treated with the utmost respect. And many times in that communal uh, culture, you're going to see a high value for those that are seniors, senior adults. And so that's a, that's a one uh, interesting way where, where we need to appreciate cultures that are different from us could be in that way. But many times we want to reject things that are different from us. Um, the attitude that we are the people prevails. This pride is perhaps the strongest among those who have the least experience with other cultures. You want to, to guard against ethnocentrism? Get around other people that are different from you. And you're going to begin to see what you love and, and what is so unique about different cultures, and it will draw your heart to them. All right, now we're kind of talking about worldviews. So we've talked about cultures, CQ, and I want to highlight worldviews because a worldview is the thought system we develop for explaining the world around us 
and our experience in it. Worldviews matter because they are, an attempt, they, are our, they are an attempt to make sense of the world and gospel sharers need to know where the gospel intersects with the, gospel, with the people's worldview. I'm going to read these and then kind of frame it all up. Understanding worldviews helps us to contextualize our approach to missions. When we try to operate from a biblical worldview, okay? Now, but our biblical worldview intersects with our Western worldview, all right? Our Americanized worldview. So how we are or the worldview with which we are raised, the culture that we come from. So, so there's always going to be this kind of intersection of cultures or worldviews, even in our own hearts for the believer, because you have what the world says, and then you have what the Bible says, and there's always going to be this tension, right? Well, as you begin to learn about worldviews and how other people view the world, what that's going to help you to do is what's called contextualization. How do you contextualize the gospel in a way that somebody might better receive it. Now, this is key when we talked about contextualization. We are not changing the message of the gospel. We never change the method. But based on worldview, we will and can change the methodology from which we will share the gospel. Does that make sense? So as I step into a new culture... I need to determine what do they value and how do they value it so that I can better share the gospel with them in a way that makes sense to them. Never compromising the, the, the message, but being willing to change my method. Uh, cultures, most cultures will fall in one of the following worldviews. Guilt, innocence, honor, shame, fear, power. All right, just by these three these three uh, um, worldviews alone, does anybody have an idea of which one the American or Western worldview would fall into? Get fear of power. Anybody else have a different thought? Honor shame. Yeah, you're honor shame. Yeah, <laughs> you're honor shame for sure. Yep, yep. So think about it this way. <clears throat> you're watching TV at night and uh, a commercial comes on and they start showing you all of these pictures of these malnourished uh, animals, right? And a Sarah McLaughlin uh, <laughs> song comes on and it just breaks your heart. What do you think they're trying to do in that commercial. They're trying to make you feel what? Guilty. Guilty. Right? Because you need to do something to help these individuals. American culture, or these dogs, or cats, American culture would primarily fall in guilt innocence. Okay? And I've got a... Because we are motivated, motivated by guilt, many times, what do we talk? We talk about it, right? I don't want to put you on a guilt trip. <laughs> but if you really love Jesus, you would be willing to do this. Or if you loved me, <laughs> or if you thought enough of me, you would be willing. So this, this idea of guilt and innocence is what motivates most Westerners. 
Um, by increasing our understanding of each worldview, we will learn the most effective ways to share the gospel with people from different cultures. I want to show you a video that really helps tie this all together. It's going to explain the three types of worldviews, and then it's going to explain how we can utilize Scripture to effectively share the gospel with those worldviews. No, yeah, sorry. That's all right. Say it, it one more time. It seems so different than those other three. Right? Yep. Um, like it's a, it doesn't fit in the Catholic Right. It's, it's so different because grace, mercy, love, all of that wraps up. God represents all of those things. And justice, when I look at Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, it says that, um, that, that God is, uh, he is kind and gracious he is loving kindness. He, he gives mercy to generations. But then it says in verse 7, He will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. So in God, in a biblical world, you, you have perfect love, perfect peace, and then but perfect justice. And so it does conflict with these others. And I think as you watch this video, you're gonna, it'll come together and click with you how you can utilize that biblical worldview that, that is so different to then bring about something better so, as you share the good news of Jesus. Coming from the outside, I would have thought it was more pure and proper, right? Mm -hmm. if, if you watch the news, right? When a lot of those fear things, right? Mm -hmm. You see bad stuff happening, yep. and bad people here. Mm -hmm. And, and politi politics, the same thing, right? Yep. A lot of fear based, more so than guilt, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, we're a melting pot. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, watch, watch this video and then let's come back and talk about it. I think it, it really does help um, walk through it. And I think um, normally Central America and South America would fall more into fear power versus guilt and innocence. And I wonder if that's a little bit of even your own worldview playing into that. So let's walk through this and, and we'll talk about it. All right. <clears throat> Questions, observations? So it's almost like a biblical worldview has answers for everybody. Isn't that awesome? But do you see, if I approach somebody that is, is a part of a honor-shame culture from a guilt-innocent perspective or worldview, do you see how the gospel may not communicate as effectively? Because they're not worried about guilt. They're worried about honor and shame. Right? Or fear, fear and power, they're not necessarily worried about honor and shame. They're trying to make sure that the spirit realm is uh, um, like is satisfied. So when you talk about charms, like we, through our Memphis for the Nations event that we had this last weekend, our missionaries were from uh, uh, Sub Saharan Africa. So they, in Sub Saharan Africa, that the majority of the cultures there are going to be fear and power. So they, it's animistic in nature. Their religion is going to be animistic, ancestor worship. Uh, they're going to really focus in on the spiritual world. And so one of the big things that they do is 
they make charms and they bind them on their bodies to help ward off evil spirits, right? So when somebody gets saved, and, and he told a story on Sunday morning, I don't know if you're, if you're here, but he told a story about a witch doctor um, that they were working with that came to know the Lord. And when he came to know the Lord, he recognized that God was all-powerful and he took all of his charms, everything that he had, he put it in a pile and burned it. They talked about one witch doctor, doctor uh, in another setting that we were talking with them uh, that um, used his homes for sacrifices. And uh, he knew in order to be free from all of that, he had to burn his house down. So he burned his hut down uh, in, uh, in Africa knowing that he had given uh, uh, power to the enemy and he wanted to take that back by destroying it. That fear power. We learned about a gospel presentation for that type of culture. We, it's called the two kingdoms. God created, uh, God created the kingdom of light. The kingdom of light was perfect in everything. But the, uh, Satan wanted to be like God and disobeyed God in his pride. And because of his pride, because he wanted to be like God, he, God kicked him out and created the kingdom of darkness. And I'm not going to take the time to share the whole gospel, but... But this idea, like when we talk about when we talk about spirit, the spirit world, many times we're focused on heaven and we're focused on hell. We don't really talk about the in-between. Scripture talks about the in-between a lot. But this, an individual that's in fear and power culture, this communicates to them because they understand that there's a kingdom of light. They're, they understand that there's good and bad and evil and, and good in the world. And so this is a better way. And then you talk about Jesus coming in so that he can restore and bring back the kingdom of light the way that it's supposed to be. And so that's just a unique way where we take the culture into consideration as we share the gospel. So when we talk about um, uh, individuals that we are working with in the United States that may be coming from a uh, generational poverty, most of them will probably work in the guilt-innocent worldview culture because they are part of Western culture. And so the idea that it's going to be individualistic, measured by right or wrong, guilt is focused on what they have, have or haven't done, and then we use the gospel message that Jesus paid the price for our sin by dying a death we that we deserved. Our guilt is taken away by his death and resurrection. So you, do you see how just by knowing and worldview, it can help you to better communicate the gospel and as you walk through that. So culture plays a, wor a part. Worldview plays a part. When we bring those together, then we're able to effectively walk through life with somebody and hopefully bring them to a place of where they will accept Christ. So when we talk about applying this into the life after row, if we are looking at individuals that 
are walking through crisis pregnancy or, or individuals that are stuck and struggling with generational poverty, how are we going to help take the next step? And it's just simply by talking about uh, investing in relationships. I have a handout talk that kind of talks through this a little bit. Um, and it's just this idea of deposits and withdrawals. If you're trying to make the difference in somebody's life or you're trying to communicate Jesus that will make the difference in somebody's life because we can't save anybody, right? One of the best ways to do that is through a relationship. If you look at the top of this page, it says, When individuals who have been in poverty and have successfully made it in the middle class are asked how they made the journey, the answer nine times out of ten has to do with a relationship. A person who made a suggestion or took an interest in them as individuals. This is so important because when we try to, to enter into somebody's life and quote-unquote fix them, many times we're looking at just their problems and not them as individuals. A relationship is a give and a take. It's an investment of your time and your, your resources to get to know the person and not just their situation. See, many times as Americans in Western culture, we're fixers. We take the look at a problem, we assess it, we figure out step one, step two, step three to fix it. Well, that's fine, but a divorce from a relationship, it will fall on deaf ears. You want to encourage somebody, care about them. And one way to care about them is these deposits and withdrawals. The first... uh, box that you see there with deposits and withdrawals comes from a guy by Stephen of Covey. Um, But if you flip it onto the back, you will say deposits made to an individual in poverty or withdrawals made from an individual in poverty. Deposits are good. Deposits help build relationship. Withdrawals help distort or disrupt a relationship. So you have these areas, appreciation for humor and entertainment provided by the individual, acceptance of what that individual cannot say about a person or situation, respect for the demands and priorities of relationships, using the adult voice. I don't know if y'all remember, a long time ago we talked about adult child voice um, and their uh, adult child and there was one more voice, I forget, I forget it. Um, assisting with, assist with, assisting with goal setting, telling the individual his or her goals, identifying options related to an available resources, understanding the importance of personal freedom of speech and individual personality. Um, it talks about how does a congregation build, how does a congregation create and build relationships through support systems, through caring about individuals, by promoting individual achievements, by being role models, by insisting upon successful behaviors in the church setting. Support systems, I love this are simply networks of relationships. Have, you, have y'all ever been in a situation where you got a job because of somebody you know? Yep. It's like, hey, I'm looking for a job. Or anybody ever been in a situation where you got a house or somebody said, hey, there's this house for sale. This happened to me last year. There's a house for sale. You might be interested in it. It's not gone on the market yet. Last year, that was a big deal. 
<laughs> and it was a big answer to pray, prayer. And, and it was because of a relationship that I, that I had. Support networks are all based on relationships. Now, we don't have a lot of time to go over this, but I wanted, I wanted to hand this out. You'll see at the bottom of the page, there's a um, case study on a young lady named Lakitha. I'm going to read it, and then I want to talk about how maybe we can utilize some of these uh, deposits that we've talked about to walk through this situation. It says, you are a high school, studies, high school social studies teacher in inner city Houston. One of your students, Lakitha, was so rude in your 10th grade class that you told her that she could not return until you had a conversation with her mother. She calls her mother and tells, her that her, and tells you that her mom will be there at 7.30 the next day to meet you. You were at school the next morning at 7.15 a.m. Lakitha's mother doesn't show up. The next day, Lakitha is waiting for you before school. She is crying. She apologizes profusely for her behavior in class and tells you the following. Her dad is in prison. She is the oldest of five children. Her mother work, works two jobs, and Lakitha works from 5 to 9 p.m. at Burger King every day to bring in money. Yesterday, her mother was on her way to school to see you, but she got stopped by the police for an expired inspection sticker. Because she didn't have a driver's license, she was put in jail. Her mother is still in jail, and Lakitha is all alone with the children. She is 15 years old. Lakitha asked to be allowed to be back in your class, and she asked you to help get her mother out of jail. Now, this case study comes out of um, a framework for understanding poverty, so we have two options as a high school teacher. We can say, so sorry, Lakitha. I hope, I hope all goes well. Or we can enter into a relationship with Lakitha and try to help her along the way. So we're going to do what Jesus would do, and we're going to enter. I'm going to make the answer easy for you. You're going to enter into a relationship with Lakitha. <laughs> because I know all of y'all want to do what Jesus would do. So with that said, if we're going to strategically build a relationship with Lakitha, what are some ways that we can come alongside her and make deposits in this relationship? Because just two days ago, she was very rude to me in class. And I, so rude that I said, she cannot come back into my classroom until I talk to her mother. So at this point, you're thinking she's a bratty teenager not knowing all of these other things. Now you know all of these other things and you want to build a relationship with her. Do you all have any ideas on what might be a good way to make some deposits in this relationship? So... Yeah. 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 But, you know, she's got her four siblings at home or somewhere else, you know. So at this point, like you have an opportunity to either use the parent voice, which is I would think would be very um, tempting, right? Let me enter into the situation and fix it. I'm going to tell you what you need to do. But what would an adult voice do instead of telling somebody what to do? What would an adult voice do? I always feel bad, like saying adult and child voice. It feels <laughs> awkward. Make her feel like she's being talked down to. Yeah, that's that's what a parent voice would do. Parent 
yeah. But if we're going to be try to build relationships and make deposits in the relationship, what are some things that we can say in our adult voice that could be a uh, help with the situation? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because this is very good, right? Yeah. It really goes to the nitty gritty. Like what she just described is exactly that, right? Yeah. Assisting with goal setting, as opposed to telling the individual, or the kid, the girl, what she should be doing, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your approach is exactly what they're describing here, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, that, and, uh, and then the next one is what they actually described here, right? Identifying options so that it's available responses. That's it. Because it's not yeah. just us, right? Right. Yeah, as a high school social studies teacher, you number one, you're not going to be rolling in the money. So money's not going to fix this issue, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to fix this issue. But Lakeitha is a 15-year-old faced with a, a father that's in prison whose mother is in prison or jail right now, different than prison, and then four other siblings at home. So, okay, you, you start to assess, okay, let's, let's talk about what do you think is probably, she's got two primary concerns right now and it's not school. What do you think those two primary concerns are? Her siblings and her mom. Her siblings and her mom. So, hey, what are you doing right now to make sure your siblings are okay? And so you're just asking her a question and then she is giving you feedback and then in turn, you can think, well, have you thought about this? Now, have you thought about this is very different than you need to do this. Do you see that difference? Because in this situation, it's very tempting to tell a 15-year-old what she needs to do. But that's not your place. You're trying to build a relationship with her and build a support system. Now, you walk in and she's asking for a specific thing. Does anybody remember what she was asking for specifically? Getting her mom out of jail. So what are, like, as you walk through that, you might, be, have to, you might have to say, I don't know exactly how I can help get your mom out of jail, but we're going to do this together and walk through it together. And so the, the key thing I'm wanting you to, to grab onto is as you are navigating and building relationships, you have to build somebody's trust. And if you are continually building, taking withdrawals because you're using your parent voice, you're telling them the goals instead of assisting them with goals, it's like, because you should say, well, you need to make a budget. You need to, to do this. You need to do that. But you can say, hey, do you think it would be a good thing to establish a budget? Do you think it would be a good thing to call somebody at this place to see how we might be able to help get your mom out of prison. You know, instead of telling them, helping assist make uh, those decisions. So I just wanted to try to give you like this case study so that um, you can begin to think about in a real world setting as you're dealing with somebody that's struggling with crisis pregnancy, right? You know, in her, in a lot of times, in somebody that's struggling with crisis pregnancy that's abortion minded, 
they feel like abortion is the simplest answer to their problem. Right? They don't, they don't even care about other options. They just want to be free of this problem. So using your adult voice, you can say, have you thought about other options? And in return, that person may say, no, I haven't thought about other options. What, what other options are there? And many times, individuals that are in crisis pregnancy situations, they don't know that there's even any other options available. They're not thinking about adoption. They're not thinking about fostering or keeping the baby and seeing what could happen. They want a solution to their problem. And what is the world telling them? Abortion's the answer. So you have to begin to figure out as you enter into relationships, how can I effectively make deposits in the relationship? And it's just simply treating them as a friend. You don't tell your friends what they have to do or what they need to do, right? You help them navigate the solutions effectively and appropriately. And so these are just some things that we've walked through. And I, I always like these six actions to take uh, when building new relationships. Seek understanding. Don't make assumptions, right? An assumption that we could have made of Lakeitha is that she's just a smart aleck teenager. But she's a teenager that's having to be an adult, that's working every day, right? So we can't make assumptions. Ask questions. Be humble. Respect our neighbors. Respect them and their beliefs, their culture. And know that different is not bad. These are six simple steps that you can take as you build new relationships that will help you navigate culture and worldview so that you can effectively share the gospel and effectively enter into a relationship with somebody. Does that make sense? Any questions? All right. Right. That's it. Yeah. Instead of saying, do this, let's say, have you thought about this? Do you think that this could be a good idea? And it's, it's in many ways communicating the same thing, but you're not taking that person's ability to choose away from them. You are offering up suggestions. And in the end, if you force them to do something or if they choose to do it, which one's probably going to be more effective? The, the choosing, right? Everybody's been forced to do something they don't want to do. It's not fun. Like, I've got things in my life that I don't have a choice over, and I complain about those things the most, right? I won't go into them. It's not a counseling session, but if anybody's interested to counsel me. <laughs> uh-huh. Right. Right. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yep. Right. 
Right. It's, it's so cool that we have people from different cultures in this class because this becomes real life. Like for, for a Westerner, individual choice is a high regard. Like it's top notch. But for honor-shame culture, if you go against authority, you're bringing shame to your family. And the only thing that you want to do is honor your family. So you follow authority and you... Uh, many times they want to be told to, what to do or they do what they're told even, in, in, even if they don't want to do it because they, don't want, they, reg, they regard honor above individual choice. Isn't that, isn't that neat to think about? I mean, it's just it's eye-opening. So now when I'm talking with you, I might not need to talk about individual choice. Or if I'm walking with somebody that's, that's navigating this from an honor-shame culture, how do I begin to talk to them about their choices or things that they can do and understanding that I could tell them what to do and they might do it because of the culture that they come from, but is that really what's best for them? It's just, it's just interesting. We don't think about that all the time because what we do is we view people through our worldview. And that's if you want a big takeaway, do not always view people through your individual worldview Think about where they're coming from. Because if you think about them through your worldview, you will end up judging them and thinking they are wrong because they're not doing it your way. It's so cool. It's so unique that we have different cultures represented even in this room. So, all right, I'm over late. I've got two minutes, and I will pray, and I will yeah, let y'all be dismissed. I'll hang around if anybody wants to ask any other questions. Thank y'all for being here, and hopefully this will be helpful. Um, I can send this PowerPoint to, uh, or uh, a PDF of this PowerPoint to um, Jessica, and she can send that to you if you'll think that would be helpful. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you and we love you. Um, Lord, I just rejoice that you created culture. Uh, Lord, um, and each culture is a representation of who you are because we are all created in your image. And Lord, as language and um, environment and location plays such an important role of who we are, Lord. I pray that you will help us to, to take into consideration unique cultures, unique worldviews as we go about our daily lives and build relationships that we can utilize them to better share the gospel. Lord, give us a desire to have a high cultural intelligence so that we can go and learn about other cultures and how you have made them so that we can better serve them. And Lord, I do pray that you will help us to navigate relationships well. Help us to work from a position of humility rather than pride. We thank you and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.